You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Thank you for joining us today as we continue our examination of salient issues relevant to organisations from a cyber perspective, forming part of Trowers and Hamlin's ongoing campaign during National Cyber Security Awareness Month. My name is Matt Whelan and I'm delighted to welcome our guest William Taff as we talk about why secure communications for businesses are so important. William is the Chief Operating Officer and Co-Founder of Lockdown Cybersecurity, a specialist cybersecurity training provider and facilitator of high-end security services through their world-leading vetted partners. Their three core areas of business focus are human training, cybersecurity solutions and professional services and cyber insurance. Welcome, William. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Matt. Good morning. Good morning. Um, today, we're going to be talking about why communication is king, um, sort of when talking about cybersecurity. So I think we'll just dive right in there and start with the sort of key question, the most important question. What are the everyday risks we face when communicating internally as a business and externally? Well, you know, I suppose, Matt, when I was thinking about this question when you posed it to me yesterday and I thought to myself, I was born in 85 and we're only not too, I, I still feel quite young, really, to be honest, even though I'm 37 now, I feel younger than than my age betrays me for. But when we look back and we think about communication methods, you know, when, probably for the first 10 years of my life, we had a landline phone. And if you wanted to catch somebody, you caught them on the landline. And if they were out, you didn't catch them, right? And, you know, we're not that many years ahead, maybe 30 years ahead. And we've seen through the pandemic, all of a sudden, there is this enormous change in the amount of mediums that we have available to ourselves to send messaging on. So, you know, in your instance, Matt, what do you use to communicate on a daily basis? What, what, what tools would you say you use? It's very, very true. And it's probably least likely the phone. So it's probably instant messaging, <laughs> WhatsApp, um, you know, and emails, uh, probably. And uh, yeah, very contrary to 30 years ago, it's very instantaneous. And you need to reply and, you know, keep in contact with everybody within sort of a 24 hour period, essentially. Absolutely, absolutely. So email's a, a really big one, right? And actually email's been around for a while now. And so it's a mature product. We're all used to it. There's so many millions and millions and hundreds of millions and maybe billions of email addresses that reside out there. Um, but what we've also seen since 2008 was the rise of the smartphone. And that was a huge game changer for communication, really. Because all of a sudden, we're not just communicating via an SMS message. And Matt, you know, we're almost the same age. Can you remember when you used to have to type out an SMS message one button at a time? Sadly, I can. <laughs> <laughs> like a half an hour of communication per message, right? But, but these days, we have a glut of apps that we use on top of SMS messaging. So, I mean, even from my own experience here, you know, I'm using WhatsApp on a daily basis. I'm using Signal on a daily basis. And that was really when the pandemic happened because of the perceived fear that your data might suddenly go missing. It was how do we make sure that our communications are actually kelt secure? Who is viewing this? And do we know who's viewing it? And do we want these people to know our data, to know our information? to know our behaviours of life. But it goes far beyond that now because we've also got things like Telegram, 
We've got Discord, which is what all the young kids are using, I've been told. We've also got different apps as well, like Slack, which we use in our business environments. So actually what we're looking at is huge amounts of data across multiple platforms coming into your daily life whether that's your working life and your personal life with your behaviors and unfortunately what's happened is that the two of these are overlapping aren't they right so where is the distinguishment between what we do on a personal level with information which we would deem non-sensitive or not of a high value versus are we using those same processes that same approach when we're dealing actually with stuff of high sensitivity and high confidentiality and in many ways I think this is the question that we need to pose Matt because I don't think we fully really think through are we using an app that is safe for the type of communication and that method that we're putting it through and uh, you know why do we do anything Matt you know convenience right yeah that's the that's the key right so you know for anybody listening in on this and hopefully enjoying this podcast so far I would say that when people are developing a product, when they're looking at research and development, the key drivers that they're looking for is speed to market and convenience, right? They want to do it before somebody else does it. It has to be more convenient a tool to use, otherwise it won't be adopted. Unfortunately with this though, security is an afterthought. People think to themselves, well, what we can do is we'll build the app and then we'll test it and we'll use the security and we'll put security over the top of it and that will secure it and unfortunately what we've seen time and time again through the news and we continue to see is that that approach fundamentally is flawed because unless you think about the security parameters of what data is being created and how it's being secured at the source of when that tool was being developed you run the risk later on down the line of that data being exposed to the public and that's what we're seeing, um, you know, with a number of high profile breaches, even within the last few weeks, Matt. Yes, definitely. Uh, uh, on the date of recording today, um, it's actually been announced that Australia's had a, a big sort of cybersecurity uh, leak from their sort of second biggest uh, gas provider. So, it, it, you know, it's a day to day occurrence and it's really important both on a business level, but also on a personal level. And I think people approach that in two different ways when they're at work and when they're in their personal life. But the reality mm. is the risk is still the same and it, it's still there. It still exists. So I think those are really important points and important issues that businesses and individuals need to really consider in, in their day to day activities. I think there's a little bit as well, Matt, of you know we come so quickly with technology it transforms at such a rapid pace that we don't keep abreast of how it has changed and what's being done and so with social media which you just pointed out you know it, it's there creating enormous volumes of information about us and you know somebody said to me the other day i was talking about data and metadata and i think we we, we use these phrases and often everybody nods in in uh, in agreement and like they know what that means but people don't actually relate to what that means so you know what What's the difference between your data and, and metadata? Well, I suppose your data is something that has personal quality, personally identifiable information attached to it. And we're used to talking about that word because of GDPR. So from a business perspective, we understand that we have to safeguard personal information. The other type of information is metadata, which is information which tells about your behaviours, what you do on a daily basis, what time you wake up in the morning, what time you check your emails, where you go out, who you call at, 
what times, and it looks for patterns emerging. But what that does is it anonymizes your identity as an individual. So we've got two massive sets of data just in that environment about you. And then we've also got our organizational operational data. And I think sometimes we don't fully appreciate the value of that data. So, uh, you know, a really good example. Matt, did you see the Uber instance in, in the news uh, from last week? I did indeed, yes. What are your thoughts and thoughts on that one? My instant thoughts were slightly scary. <laughs> As with most cyber breaches, it, it, it makes you think about everything you do and you're sort of, you, you start looking at your passwords in a different light again and, and, you know, what information you are actually giving. But I think what it shows is that it really is applicable to everybody, not just the small businesses, not just the large businesses. The, the, the consequences might differ in size as a result, but it really does cover everybody. And being cyber secure is just so important. And I think it shows that it has wider effects on, for example, with Uber, their drivers and their, their sort of riders. Um, mm. But also with supply chains, it, it, you know, it's a much broader ecosystem that, that cyber security attacks sort of affect. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, this is the second large public breach for Uber. So it's very embarrassing, really. Um, and from a PR perspective, it's a disaster, isn't it? Because it's been picked up by every media company in every country. And so, you know, it's, it's created a negative view of the brand. And that's something that we always battle with in cyber. It's an intangible consequence of a cyber attack. Right. And we have to understand this, embrace ourselves when we think about risk management. This is a risk that we have to catalogue, but it's a very difficult risk to quantify a value against. And, you know, risk quantification is the future. This is understanding. OK, historically, we would look at red, yellow green traffic lighted systems yeah. right but that doesn't tell enough information to a wider group of people around what the real risk is so now we're looking in the security world and we certainly work with partners like ibm to help deliver risk quantification which essentially takes that risk and puts a monetary value on it which then becomes a broader board topic that that can be discussed but just going back to the uber incident you know the first time they got hit was through a supply chain breach um they hadn't done their due diligence on a supply chain partner that was a development partner, um, an international development partner, and as a consequence, a huge volume of driver information, including passport numbers and driving licenses, were stolen. And very only listening to wonder what you can do with that information, essentially, it's old types of fraud. It's things like identity fraud, right? They'll take that information and they'll use it as a mechanism for different types of crime. Um, but what was really, really, really interesting with this Uber incident that happened was the method of how it happened. So first of all, where is the biggest weakness within your whole cybersecurity estate? And what's the answer, Matt? Uh, people. Exactly. <laughs> it always comes down to the same common denominator, doesn't it? Because no matter how much you spend on your technology, the intangible, the thing that you can't predict is the human at the end of the device. And in this instance, this was just a, a, a social engineering game. For anyone listening, social engineering is trying to be something or be somebody to get information from somebody that they shouldn't be sharing with you, right? So what can I say that will give me some some level of validity to extract that information that should not have been shared with me. And that method of obtaining that is called social engineering.
And in this instance, it was just a member of staff who had administration access to Uber who was continually being pushed messages of notifications on multi-factor authentication. It's a type of token system. We, we're used to this concept now of multi-factor, right? We use a code on our phone to give additional accesses and additional authentication there. But unfortunately, it can be breached by the humans still, right? And in this instance, somebody just portrayed themselves as being an Uber employee from the IT department. It's a giant organization. There's a lot of IT staff and it was such a nuisance and persistent being a nuisance that the member of Uber staff accepted the push notification and gave them access to the systems. But what was really, really scary, and we talk about this communication theme and what we're housing and what information, was that the attacker was able to get access to all of the vulnerability documents that Uber had created from all of the exercises on their cyber posture. And what that essentially does is give a blueprint for how to attack Uber both now and in the future. And, you know, just as a, as, as a side note to that, you know, I've been watching um, job postings and job ad postings and the amount of postings that Uber have made for new jobs in their security department this week have been astronomical. Good time to be a cyber person looking for a job, go and apply at Uber. But unfortunately, doesn't that tell you a lot about the mentality of an organization that we wait until it's too late before we decide to do something about it? That is so true. It's very, very reactive. And, uh, you know, it's not a proactive stance and it doesn't sort of try and mitigate any issues. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's all of these pe uh, people's data that has been lost for them to do something about it, which is, you know, really scary. And um, on the back of that, I suppose one of the key questions I have is the importance of education. And it seems like a lot of people use the buzzword cybersecurity, metadata, all of that. But do they really understand what it is and, and, and how to prevent it? Do you think that education in from Uber, from, you know, a broader sense in society would have helped mitigate that breach that Uber sort of tackled? Yeah, I, you know, I fully agree with that, with that statement, Matt. And the way that I always look at the training element is that it is the cheapest thing that you can do within the cybersecurity service world that will have the most impact on your organization. And yet, despite that, it isn't given the value that it should be given. Because we hear the word cyber, right? And like, what kind of imagery does that conjure? It's electrical, right? It's new. It's, it's, it's a bit edgy. That's, all, that's, that's the, the connotations which come into my head. Right. But in reality, that leads you down a path where you have an approach that's technology led. Right. You think that this is a technology problem which you can combat through that. And actually, like we've already alluded to, it is the human at the end of the device that is making the decisions. They are the ones that get tricked, they get fooled, they get conned and scammed. So. The technology is there to reinforce controls, to reinforce processes. It does protect us for sure, but it isn't a silver bullet, right? And no matter what level of technology in a state you spend on, there is no one fixed all toolkit, right? Nothing that will work on a consistent basis that will stop all attacks. So actually, we need to consider as a pillar and a start point for any cyber journey that we have to educate staff. And this can't be done as an annual exercise. This has to be done as a continuous process. And the reason for that is that the attackers aren't doing this as an annual exercise, right? They're not using one tool a year and it's a 
version release and well there'll be next year's version and we might need to worry about that they're continually reinventing their methodology of attack they're continually looking at the technology at the back end to use and you know we live in a global world where unfortunately attacks are of a global nature and who is attacking us? You know, the profile of the attacker has gone from, I, I, you know, I was looking and, and joking at the film Hackers from the 90s with Angelina Jolie. Do you remember that one, Matt, or are you too young? I, I was slightly too past my time. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you know, that film, if anyone wants to go back and watch it, you know, the poster of that film said their crime is curiosity. And, uh, and you know, we're, we're, we're not even 25 years later and now their crime is extortion. So it's uh, it's dramatically changed, right? This whole environment and the amount and scope of attack has completely changed. And we don't know anymore whether we're dealing with sole attackers, like maybe the Optus case was actually somebody just chancing it who didn't want to cause financial damage. Or are we looking at organised crime groups like Laptus, for example, um, who were thought to have been responsible for the Uber incidents? Um, recently in London as well, we had Go Ahead, who, who run a number of buses for Transport for London. They were subject to a cyber attack, which has had a crippling impact on their business operations and continues to have a crippling impact on their business operations. So, you know, I suppose one of the things that we need to think about here is when it does go wrong, Matt, what is the consequence of that going wrong? And a lot of people in they haven't suffered an incident, haven't fully appreciated the breadth of what actually occurs. And the breadth of what occurs, we've already spoken about the negative PR, but we're talking about operational disturbance. We're talking about going back to pen and paper. And everybody comes with a view of, well, if the worst happened, I'm sure we can go back to pen and paper. But the only problem is they've forgotten how to write. And uh, and it's been so long since they've actually logged things in a professional way in, in a document and shared that information. How do you share it, right? We're used to using email. If you remove electrical equipment from the equation the job your day-to-day -day job is so reliant on these systems that it really clunks to a halt and that's the real consequence so you know the other the other um, misassumption is well we have backups you know we pay somebody to do IoT I'm sure they know what they're doing we've got a department that can do this I'm sure we can bounce back but have you tested it right have you actually tried to restore have you played a mock incident or a simulated in attack in your environment to actually see what would happen and I think the results for many organizations that hadn't would be truly shocking is my honest appraisal of that yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I think that it's, you know, it's one of those things that people think about on the fringes, but they really need to give it some deep thought. Um, I'm going to take a slightly different angle now. Um, and I think this is because when we've been talking about it quite a bit, um, it's sort of external communications. So the most obvious sort of idea for a breach or concept that uh, what a breach is, is when communications are being sent from a business to another business to their supply chain you know outside of the country and that is seen as a you know a risk area understandably but i think what people don't often associate being a risk as well is internal communications and that is a very different um concept which if we take specific scenarios an example in a hr context then there's some very personal and sensitive information that will be discussed almost on a daily basis and now we're working from home most of it will take place over zoom over teams over you know the internet um if that information got out then the consequences are again pretty great so i'm just wondering your 
thoughts on why people don't focus on the internal communications as much as the external? Um, I think we're so busy is the honest answer, right? We juggle so many balls, all of us at work. We use all these different types of communication. We go to meetings, we have virtual meetings and the pandemic has changed things permanently, hasn't it, right? Because we've adopted technologies. Even right now, we're not sat in the same room, Matt. We're working over a virtual platform and it's incredible, right? It's great that we can do this, but sometimes we're drawn to the attractiveness and what we don't see is the risk you know and when you pray for rain you have to deal with the mud too um, which i've just stolen from the equalizer i do like dropping movie comments for anyone listening in um but it's very very true right we focus on digital transformation we focus on on wins right how can we streamline how can we make this better and meanwhile we're creating more and more conversations and i think also we need to think about what kinds of information so you just mentioned hr data and hr data is very sensitive right are we conducting conversations around hr are we conducting interview processes for recruitment through the same tools that we use for day-to-day conversations the same tool I might use to speak with my mum later, right? Actually, are we categorizing the types of data that we're using through the organization? That has to be the start point. So when people say to me, well, you know, I don't know what to do. Where do I go first, right? I've got a million companies talking to me. I've got a million solutions, loads of abbreviations. I don't understand half of the language. I just want to know what to do. Where do I start, right? Well, the start point is understanding where you are in terms of your level of maturity. That has to be the start point. And when you start to understand and unpick that you also start to understand what data resides within your systems and you know we talked a bit we both talk to large businesses on a regular basis Matt as well as small businesses and many of them share actually the same types of data right we have our HR data and our HR data has obviously got your personal information so we know that by law by compliance we have to secure that data right we have to go an extra mile to secure that data but actually let's think about that Uber example where the person stole all of their vulnerability documents in that instance it wasn't prudent to have had those conversations across the to um, teams or zoom right because actually how safe are those platforms now there isn't this incident here where these platforms are inherently unsafe but you have to also think that how big a brand is microsoft i mean how many you know you, you use microsoft do your family members use it matt as well yeah all of them every right. single one Yeah, no wonder Bill Gates is so rich, right? This is the reason, right? We all (laughs) use their products. And because the criminals know that we all use their products, they are desperate to find holes in these products, which they can exploit to steal that information across. So if we're going to start to categorize the data that we use in our organizations, and it goes so far, I mean, obviously conversations of your of your nature are litigation conversations. Those are high sensitivity, Matt, right? The consequences are severe if that information is breached. We have our HR data. We have information potentially around mergers and acquisitions. We have financial financial conversations around our finances. We have borrowing and lending conversations with the banks. We have conversations around intellectual property and IP, right? Then we have our partnerships. We have contracts. We have all of these areas which would open us up 
very, very, you know, and expose us, expose what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. And we have to secure these in a safe way. And unfortunately, we've adopted a bit of a, a convenience-first policy of, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. Who's going to be interested in us for that? And, you know, this is the very reason as well, Matt, that when we spoke the other day, you know, around communication, and I said, actually, you know, from uh, Lockdown Cybersecurity, we do have a secure communication platform, which works in a very similar way to Teams or Zoom, except it has that extra security functionality of whoever comes into that environment, you know that they are meant to be in that environment, and it works off of a blockchain, which is confusing language to many of us, right? But essentially what it does is it gives an auditable trail of exactly that meeting session. So if anything is changed after that session, you're able to see that that change has been implemented. And that gives a, a complete assurance that everything that you have done in that environment of that sensitive nature was held securely. And uh, I mean, Matt, have you been watching the capture on BBC iPlayer? I have indeed. It's a uh, yeah, very, very interesting uh, concept. And I suppose it, it raises the question of you know, reality versus fiction. But yeah. I think there's a really important point around that, which is to do with sort of the reliability of video evidence, for example, yeah. which, you know, your platform directly addresses. So, yeah, what, what do you think about that? Well, I think anything digital can be manipulated, right? If you start with that as an opening scambit statement, right? Do you believe that anything digital can be manipulated? And if the answer to that is probably yes, I've seen instances where things have been manipulated, well, then that throws into question how you secure these things. And actually, the additional questions we need to pose to ourselves around whether it is valid, whether it is authentic, right? The authenticity of everything. And, you know, there's some really interesting case studies on this um, recently. So a Middle Eastern bank was actually hit only last week for somewhere between 35 and 50 million dollars and the way that they were hit was somebody created an AI voice recording of somebody senior at the bank giving instructions to payroll to make a payment on his behalf now it did it, the come the people that did this understood the processes that the bank went through they understood the thresholds of what could be asked for so they had had some access whether that was given to them from an insider and we always have to unfortunately consider the insider threat as part of any security and risk exercise we have to consider and we don't like to because we hire these people and we want to vouch for everybody that we endorse right but the reality of what shows us in the world is that we have to take precautions we have to vet right are we vetting processes when we're using um, these these two uh, teams or zoom or video conferencing solutions are we doing interviews remotely and that information which we're gaining from those interviews how are we validating that information are we vetting this to make sure that it's accurate that, that what that person said is really true and so this is a huge other area around validation and vetting and and something that we we get involved with quite regularly to make sure and give our clients comfort in the fact that yes a the data is secure but b the data is accurate right the integrity definitely. of it definitely i think that's a really really important point and it sort of goes before we talk about anything else it's about going back to that categorization of data making sure that it's you know true and it you know it's accurate and complete it and regardless of what happens after that point if that step has not taken place then you are left at a bit of a, a, a in no man's land essentially with what that data means um, and I think that's really, really interesting. 
I'm going to ask a question now, I suppose, a, a little bit more based on what, what I do uh, from a legal side of things. Um, there's, there's a lot of legislation at the moment on data protection, both in the EU, in the UK and sort of more generally around the globe. Um, but what we're seeing from a cybersecurity perspective is that at present, that has always been a little bit of an add-on. It's not really the, been the sole focus of what that particular piece of legislation was enacted for. Um, and I suppose my question for you is, do you think that it's better to keep it a little bit of a grey area so businesses can react more flexibly? Or do you think higher or more legislation will actually aid businesses in protecting themselves with their communications? Yeah, I, I actually think when we look at regulations and when we consider what's come before versus what the working environment looks like today, and then we think about the technology landscape of the future too, which is literally knocking on the door, right? We are on the cusp of automated vehicles. We're on the cusp of smart cities. We're using Internet of Things devices. Those are smart devices for anyone that doesn't know. And what is a smart device? It's something that's got inbuilt connectivity to connect it to the Internet, right? So it's feeding data. So we look at this technology landscape of what's coming, and I think regulation is inevitable within this environment, right? It is only going to become more mandatory that you have to report on these things. And we, we're starting to see the first trickle of these of these incidents. So GDPR, you mentioned, right? And GDPR, there was a big drive behind it. Um, probably the drive lasted six months before May of 2018. But April of 2018 was the busiest month because that's the <laughs> bit where everybody took it seriously, right? And uh, And tried to get stuff in place, right? And it did help. I, I do think GDPR, right, are people post-GDPR, we're, we're, what are we, 2022, so four years on, if we look back, are we more aware of personal data of what it is and our requirements around it? Of course we are, right? I think that's a blanket statement that we can say. But you're right, it only touches slightly on the cybersecurity element. And the cybersecurity element only really comes into play when you've had a breach, because that's when an investigation is launched, and that's when they're going to look at what parameters you had in place to protect and also matt you know we talk about those protection parameters and we said earlier on humans were the key things one of the key areas the ico will look at is what training was delivered right were data handlers given an appropriate level of training it's called the accountability framework and we have to make sure we align with that but if we also look at the future and even the present now, we've got the Telecommunications Security Act, right? That's being implemented for anybody who's deemed national infrastructure within telecommunications. So all of your broadband providers, all of your mobile phone operators, right? We then have NIS, NIS for national infrastructure. So all national infrastructure, anything from national grid to the energy providers and electricity have to comply with that standard. That has broader security parameters within that, right? And we we're used to hearing things maybe like ISO 27001. Is that a good framework for us to go down? Well, actually, yes, because where we're entering is ultra framework, more framework, more responsibilities, more requirements, director responsibilities around ensuring the cybersecurity of our clients, of our customers and of our um, of our staff, right? our employees. Right. So we, we're told that we need to do it. So taking it down a framework is a very good mode. And then also we've got 
Robert Dora for Financial Services, which is the Digital Operational Resilience Act, which is inbound next year for all financial services organisations. So we're starting to see more regulation. But yes, I think it's sooner or later, and I don't know when or what point it will be, and it'll probably be gradual and it'll probably be sector first, but we will see legislation for all UK businesses to adhere to cybersecurity parameters, and it's something that we'll have to embrace because eventually we'll have no choice. That's that's a really, really good summary. And I, I think I've got one final question, if that's okay. And sure. it, it's around if as a UK nation we decide to go down one route with cybersecurity legislation and regulation if that does not align to the european union or globally my view is that it's a team effort cybersecurity is essentially you are as strong as your weakest link whether that be your supply chain whether that be your employees whether that be you know the country that you work in you are only as strong as your weakest link so my question is if the UK goes down one route of overregulation or heavy regulation and the US doesn't, then will that have a wider impact on how we approach cybersecurity? Because my view is that it probably would. Yeah, I think I think it probably would. But then, you know, I think I think we just need to look at the global environment. Right. So first of all, the, the statistics are shocking. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when we look at when we look at crime and criminality, right, and we look at what's the most common type of crime, even in the UK environment, it's fraud, right? And what is fraud now if it isn't cyber enabled, right? It's cyber fraud. That's really what it is, right? And then we look at America for influence. You just mentioned them there, and Joe Biden has been very um, forward with cyber security over the last few months, right? They've put new policies, new requirements. So they're becoming. They're probably a bit ahead of us in in the international kind of cyberspace but they are really driving change right direct responsibility and liability is, is, is inbound they already have more stringent rules around accounting responsibilities right so and and accounting is a really interesting one because the data that we use for accounting is from the systems right and if that's if that data has been manipulated by somebody then you can't rely on its, in, its integrity so you're going to start to put things forward and say this is what our balance sheet is when actually it isn't right you're going to start to fall foul of other regulations due to cyber instances because you don't have that right technology i suppose when we look globally in a global environment we've got so many countries so many continents right and some will mature at a quicker rate than others but i think there's a key kind of unit here um certainly when we look at the telecommunication security act it's not an act just being implemented in our country it's an act being implemented in a number of countries in the commonwealth America, Canada, the UK, Germany. Um, I'm probably missing a few apologies for anyone that's listening that's more learned on it. But, right, we have this worldwide type of agreements in place of how we start tackle this problem. And like you said, if we're going to build a global business, if we're going to work with partners across the world, and there's so many benefits to doing that, we just need to think about who the data is going to. Have we got the right contracts in place? Have we got the right legals that protect ourselves? Are we using insurance to underpin as redress? Is that a pillar of our strategy? It should be, right? And then we need to think about all of these processes around data, all of these technologies, these cloud technologies are brilliant, right? They give us so much flexibility. You, you know the best thing about cloud, uh, Matt? Do you know what that is? Uh, I, I do know what it is, but I don't know what the best thing is. <laughs> best thing is that you can use it from anywhere. You know the worst thing? 
you can use it from anywhere exactly right <laughs> Yeah, it's the duality of the of the technologies that we use, right? So, actually, we need to think about all of these things, right? Where is the data being hosted? Where is it moving around from? What parameters do us do our partners have in place to protect our information? You mentioned supply chain. To anybody listening, how can we get some reassurance that our partners are handling our tech, uh, our data properly in a responsible manner? And you know, we work with companies like IBM to help demystify that right to look at open source intelligence to look at what's out there on the internet already being traded is our data already being breached right understanding if that has, has been the case is a really really critical component right we talked about the secure communication platform. What types of conversations are we having? And actually, should we start prioritizing these high value conversations and putting them through the type of platform which gives us that security and peace of mind, right? We talk about our suppliers. How do we understand their parameters? Are we using supplier security assessment questionnaires? Are we asking them the right questions? And we can only ask them the right questions if we understand it ourselves. So yes, this broader understanding of knowledge, of bringing in this wider knowledge of educating our staff of educating the board of educating non-technical people and like you said it's a team effort and we're only as strong as our weakest link and it's a very apt statement man thank you very much will that has been a really insightful sort of 30 35 minutes um sort of delving into some of the more nuances and what i've really taken away from all of this is you know people need to think about due diligence, due diligence of their data. They need to think about what cyber insurance they have in place and more than anything, above all, education, 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 both internally and externally with their supply chain. And I, I think that is really, really interesting. And I think people will be really interested to sort of hear some real life examples and what lockdown cybersecurity can, can do to help them. So thank you very much. This is a series of podcasts on uh, cybersecurity during the National Cybersecurity Awareness Month in October. So there will be more to come. And just thank you. Thank you very much, Will. Thank you for having me, Matt. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.